Welcome to Lifelines, the radio program of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. I'm Matthew Wagner, Education Director of the Federation, and we have an exciting show coming up. But first, the headlines. The Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation is sponsoring two contests to encourage students to speak up for life. Students are encouraged to write or give a speech about the pro-life topics of abortion, euthanasia, or embryonic stem cell research. Our pro-life video oratory contest is open to students in 9th to 12th grades. Students can video record their speeches and submit them to us for a chance to win. The grand prize winner will receive a trip to compete at the National Pro-Life Contest in Milwaukee, Wisconsin next summer. We are also running a written essay contest which is open to students in 7th to 12th grades. Cash prizes will be awarded to the top winners. For rules and details, visit our website at www.paprolife.org. Help us equip students with the message that there's always a reason to choose life. October is a month set aside to reflect on the value of every single human life, from the moment of conception to natural death. In the hustle and bustle of daily life, it can be easy to forget that babies' lives are being lost to abortion right in our home communities. Pregnant women are in desperate need of support in our home communities, and the elderly and disabled are facing growing pressure to end their lives by medical rationing and euthanasia right in our home communities. That's why pro-lifers all across Pennsylvania are stepping up this October to raise awareness and working to restore protection for all human lives. Will you help spread the message of life in your community? To find resources for your church or community, visit our website at www.paprolife.org. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life. October 16, 2016 marks the 100th birthday of Planned Parenthood. Through those years, Planned Parenthood has been responsible for over 6 million abortions. That is a lot of innocent lives lost, a lot of women scarred emotionally and mentally, if not physically, for life, and a lot of birthdays that will never be celebrated. As sad as this anniversary is, it is also an opportunity. It is an opportunity to talk about the terrible harm Planned Parenthood has done over the last 100 years and why it must be stopped. It is an opportunity to educate people about the lies Planned Parenthood tells to try to justify its bloody business. It is an opportunity to encourage people to always choose life. Studies have found that over 80% of women who have had an abortion say that if they had been encouraged by just one person to spare their child's life, they would have done so. One person. In Pennsylvania, we have some great pro-life counselors who are telling women just that. Found, funded in part by the Real Alternatives Program, these counselors show women their lives have value, and so does the life of the baby they are carrying. Real Alternatives and the counselors working directly with these women is on the front lines of the pro-life movement. If you know of a woman contemplating an abortion, have her call a pro-life counselor at 
L-I-F-E-A-I-D and encourage her that there is always a reason to choose life. Archbishop Charles Chaput of Philadelphia recently was the keynote speaker at the 2016 Celebrate Life Banquet. His talk is being called by some the best pro-life speech they've ever heard. Please enjoy Archbishop Charles Chaput at the 2016 Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation Celebrate Life Banquet on September 29, 2016 in Harrisburg. For the past 43 years, we've been living the consequences of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court's decision that effectively legalized abortion on demand. And the abortion struggle of the past four decades teaches us a very useful lesson. This is the lesson. Evil talks a lot about tolerance when it's weak. When evil is strong, real tolerance gets kicked out the door. This, in turn, explains a lot about our current culture climate. climate. To put it simply, evil cannot bear the counterwitness of truth. It cannot coexist peacefully with goodness because evil insists on being seen as right and worshipped as being right. Therefore, the good must be made to seem hateful and wrong. The very existence of people who refuse to accept evil and who seek to act virtuously burns the conscience of those who don't. And so, quite logically, people like the people in this room, people who march and lobby and speak out to defend the unborn child, will be and are reviled by political leaders and the news media and abortion activists who turn the right to kill an unborn child into a shrine for personal choice. Seventy years ago, abortion was a crime against humanity. Four decades ago, abortion supporters talked piously about the tragedy of abortion and the need to make it safe and rare. But not today. Not anymore. Now abortion is not just a so-called right, but a right that claims positive dignity, the license to demonize its opponents, and the precedence to interfere with constitutional guarantees of freedom of speech, assembly, and religion. We no longer tolerate abortion. We celebrate it. We venerate it as a totem. People sometimes ask me if we can be optimistic, those of us who are religious believers, about the future of our country. My answer is always the same. Optimism and pessimism are equally dangerous for the believers because both God and the devil are full of surprises. But the virtue of hope is another matter. We have every reason to hope. Scripture tells us we must live in hope, and hope is a very different creature from optimism. Hope is a grace to trust that God is who he claims to be, 
and that in serving him, we do something fertile and precious for the renewal of the world. Our lives matter not because of who we are. They matter because of who God is. His mercy, his justice, his love, these are the things that move the galaxies and reach into the womb to touch the unborn child with the grandeur of being human. And we become more truly human ourselves by seeing the humanity of the poor, the weak, the elderly, and the unborn, and then fight to save it. Over the past 43 years, the pro-life movement has been written off as defeated and finished too many times to count. Yet here you are tonight again, disappointing your critics and refusing to die. And why is that? It's because no court decision, no law, no political lobby can ever change the truth about when human life begins and the sanctity that God attaches to each and every person, born or unborn. As I was gathering my thoughts for tonight, a line from Psalm 89 came back to me again and again. These are the words. Lord, make us know the shortness of our life, that we may gain wisdom of heart. The time we have in this world is brief. The choices we, ha we make have real substance, precisely because we come this way in life only once, and the world is better or worse for our passing. So our presence here tonight together has a meaning much larger than a nice meal and a good conversation about shared values. It's an opportunity to remember that God put us here together for a purpose. He's asking us to turn our hearts to building the kind of world that embodies his love and honors the sanctity of the human children he created. So based on what I've seen in the American pro-life experience over the past 40 years, I'd like to offer you a few do's and don'ts for building a culture of life. I'll begin with the don'ts. First, don't let yourselves be bullied into silence. Democracy depends on people of conviction carrying their beliefs into public debate. Respectfully, legally, and nonviolently, but vigorously without apology. Real pluralism, real pluralism, demands that people with different beliefs should pursue their beliefs energetically in the public square. This is the only way a public debate can be honest and fruitful. We should never apologize for being pro-life or for advancing our beliefs in public as well as in private. Second, don't let divisions take root. St. Augustine said that we need to be united in the essentials, free in the debatables, and charitable in all things. Diverse pro-life opinion is part of the movement's richness. As a bishop, I've always been baffled 
about how much energy can be wasted on internal pro-life bickering. We can never allow our differences to become personal. Acrimony within the pro-life movement is a gift to our opponents. It's also a form of theft from the unborn children who will suffer the consequences of any division in our ranks. Third, don't get trapped by politics, especially partisan politics. The more pro-lifers tie themselves to a single political party, the less they can speak to society at large. In the United States, Catholics, both on the left and the right, have too often made the mistake of becoming cheerleaders for a specific candidate or a specific party. That's a mistake. Fourth, don't create or accept false oppositions. Dialectical thinking, and by that I mean the idea that most of our options involve either or choices, is deeply misleading. Back during the 2008 presidential election, we saw the emergence of so-called pro-life voices that argued we should stop fighting the legal struggle over abortion. Perhaps you remember those days. Instead, they said we should join with pro-choice supporters to seek common ground. Their argument was simple. Why fight a losing battle on the legal, cultural, and moral fronts since, according to them, we haven't yet made serious progress in ending legalized abortion? Let's drop the divisive political battle, they said, and instead let's all work together to tackle the economic and health issues that might eventually reduce abortions. Of course, Many of these voices turn out to be flax for the Obama presidential campaign. In reality, the Obama White House has been extraordinary for its refusal to compromise on anything involved, involving so-called reproductive rights and for its belligerent hostility to pro-life and religious liberty concerns. But we need to look beyond the current White House to recent American history. Did Americans take a gradual social improvement road to reducing racism? No. We passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Nor have I ever heard anyone suggest that the best way to deal with murder, rape, or domestic abuse is to improve people's access to psychotherapy and job training. We make sexual assault illegal, even though we know it will still sometimes tragically occur, because it is gravely evil. It's an act of violence, and the law should proscribe it. Of course, we also have a duty to improve the social conditions that can breed domestic and sexual violence, but that doesn't change the need for a law. Likewise, if we really believe that abortion is an intimate act of violence, then we can't aim at anything less than ending abortion. It doesn't matter that some abortions have always occurred and that some abortions will always occur. If we really believe that abortion kills a developing human life, then we, have never, we can never be satisfied with mere reductions in the body count. 
Fifth and finally, don't hate the adversary. People who support a so-called right to abortion are our opponents, but they're never our enemies. Abortion-friendly lawmakers and organizations, and even people who despise us for what we believe, are not our enemies. They're brothers and sisters. We need to trust in the long-term power of love, the true power of God, to convert the human heart even in the face of our own failures. We can never allow ourselves to become bitter. The great 2nd century father of the church, Irenaeus of Lyon, warned early Christians that we've been sent like sheep into the midst of wolves. The moment we become wolves ourselves, we lose. Okay, so much for the don'ts. What about the do's? How should we proceed? Here's my first and most important do. It's very simple. Do become martyrs. Be ready and willing to pay a price for your beliefs. In today's world, we may never be asked to shed our blood in witnessing to our faith. But we do see character assassinations, mudslinging, and lies against good people every day in the public media. And we should be ready to bear the cost. Nothing, not even our good name, should stop us from doing what we know to be right. Here's a second do. Keep hope alive. Cultivating a spirit of joy is not an act of self-deception. It's a way to acknowledge that God is on our side and that human nature created by God and despite the damage of original sin is also on our side. Nothing is more inspiring than happy warriors. I've never in my life seen a joy-filled pro-abortion event. Have you? And I've always found that instructive. But we need to be filled with joy because we're women and men of hope. Here's the third do. Be strategic. Being sheep in the midst of wolves doesn't mean we can, all, we can also be dumb as rocks. Pro-life organizations are always outspent by pro-abortion forces. Our efforts are dwarfed by their money. We rarely have access to friendly media, foundations and circles of power. But this can be a blessing disguised as a curse. It forces us to be creative, long-term thinkers, and resourceful with our modest means. Being strategic means planning ahead, working together, and outsmarting our adversaries. To achieve these goals, we need a big dose of realism. We should never dream or whine about all the things we could do with millions of dollars we don't have. We need to focus on the real dollars we do have. Two fishes and five loaves of bread, well invested, in other words, given to the Lord, fed a multitude. History shows that guerrilla wars, if well planned and methodically carried out, can defeat great armies. 
And we should never forget that the greatest guerrilla leader of them all wasn't Mao Zedong or Che Guevara, but a young shepherd named David, who became a king. Here's the fifth and final do. Remember that renewing the culture, not gaining political power, is our ultimate goal. Culture is everything. Culture is our human ecology. It's the environment where we human beings breathe not only air, but ideas, beliefs, and values. Getting political power has its short-term value, but is not what pro-lifers are finally about. Our real task and our much longer-term and more important goal is to carry out what the late Pope John Paul II called the evangelization of culture. We need to work to change the culture. And that demands a lifelong commitment to education, formation, and ultimately conversion. Only genuinely good and holy persons really change the world. And therein lies our ultimate victory. If we can change one heart at a time, while we save one unborn life at a time, the day will come when we won't need to worry about saving babies because they'll be surrounded by a loving and welcoming culture. Will I see that day with my own eyes? I'm 72. I don't think I can hold my breath that long. But then I never expected to see a pope from Argentina or the fall of the Iron Curtain either. We may not see that day in our own lifetimes, but the children of your grandchildren will. The future depends on our choices and actions right here, right now, tonight, together. I want to end with one final thought. I spent nine happy years of my life as a young bishop in Rapid City, South Dakota, a place most of you probably haven't visited. The reason for that happiness was the people I served. Dakotans have a sanity that comes from their closeness to a very beautiful but also very hard land. In the Dakotas, if you behave like a fool in the way you mistreat the land or ignore the weather or abuse the environment, well, very soon you're a dead fool. So Dakotans get character or they get gone pretty quickly. I now serve in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a long way from South Dakota. <laughs> I remember I was on an elevator one day with Cardinal O'Connor, who was a Pennsylvanian who was the you know, Cardinal Archbishop of New York, and he was talking about the difficulties of being a, a bishop in uh, New York. And I said, oh, yeah, I understand. I was the bishop of Rapid City, South Dakota. And he said to me, no, you don't understand. <laughs> you know. So Pennsylvania is a long way from South Dakota. But Pennsylvania has its own beauties and its own problems. But the human realities are very much the same. Pennsylvanians, I've discovered, can be a skeptical breed. The cultural, legal, and political train here can be very tough. It takes people of exceptional character, people with the courage to fight the good fight at great personal cost, 
to endure and achieve anything good in our state. A lot of those good people are in this room tonight. Your character, your faith, and your dedication to the sanctity of the human person matter. They matter not just now, and not just here in our commonwealth, and not just for the thousands of people your work influences without even knowing their names. Your commitment to human life matters eternally because some lives will be lived only because your voice at a decisive moment for a young mother made them possible. So no matter how tired you get, no matter how hard the work becomes, no matter who praises you or who condemns you, the only thing that finally matters is this. God is good. He never abandons his people. And because of his love, And because of the witness of people like you in the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation, the future is ours, and the best is yet to come. Please be generous with the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation, with your energy and with your financial support. Send it the supporters and the resources and generous donors it needs, because We've never needed its witness and its service of human dignity more than we do today. God bless you, and may God give you faith, hope, and charity in the deepest kind of way. Thank you very much.